You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Here's Nate. Well, some have referred to the book of Leviticus as the seed bed of New Testament theology. Here in the book of Leviticus, we do receive some foundational background material which helps us understand our need for the grace of God, our need for the forgiveness of sin, and the holiness of God, and the righteousness of God, and really, in one sense, our desperate need for sanctification, to continue to grow in our relationship uh, with the Lord, and to continue to become more and more like Christ Jesus, more and more holy through and through uh, in this life as we walk uh, with the Lord. And so Leviticus, a beautiful place for us to see our great need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, by way of reminder, of course, the book of Leviticus or the name Leviticus means relating to the Levites. And at its core, the book of Leviticus is basically a manual of priestly regulations uh, including this current study that we're in of the sacrificial uh, system. And here in these first seven chapters of Leviticus, we have five different types of offerings that are outlined. In chapter one, we saw the outline of the way that they would conduct the burnt offering. And in chapter four and five, we're going to see the sin offering and the guilt offering. But here in Leviticus 2 and 3, we're going to see the grain offering in chapter 2 and the peace offering in chapter 3. And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord. Now before looking at the directions concerning this grain offering, uh, let's take a look at a little bit of background material. Uh, sometimes this offering is called the meal offering or the seal cereal offering because it consisted of flour uh, or different kinds of baked goods. And uh, they would have uncooked flour was one of the sacrifices. Bread baked in an oven would be another type of sacrifice. Bread prepared on a griddle and bread cooked in a pan. And so you had these different grain offerings that were given to the Lord, which meant that it was a bloodless sacrifice uh, to the Lord. And the purpose for the grain offering, I mean, of course, in one sense, the purpose of some of these offerings was simply that, you know, as some of it went to the Lord, much of it would go to the priest, to the Levites. And so there would be practical value to them in receiving nourishment, in receiving food and a balanced uh, diet and meals and all of that. But the symbolism of the grain offering uh, seems to emphasize a thanksgiving unto God for what the Lord has blessed us with. Almost an expression of dependence upon God. Thank you, Lord, for providing for us. We are declaring uh, that all good things come from your hand. We are dependent uh, upon you. This was a way for people to communicate their everyday desire to be walking in dependence upon God, thankful to God for his covenant mercy for that very day. And perhaps a New Testament equivalent for the believer would be Matthew 6, verse 11, when we pray to the Lord in the Lord's Prayer, give us 
this day our daily bread. Just a daily life of dependence, a daily life of thanksgiving uh, unto the Lord. And it's such a joy to be able to give thanks unto uh, God. Now, of course, in the midst of that for the people of Israel, there was also behind the scenes a beautiful type or picture that was being developed of Jesus. And of course, Jesus announced to us in John's gospel that he is the bread of life. And so here we see some uh, types or some pictures of Jesus even in the midst of this grain offering. And we'll perhaps draw out a couple of them as we move through uh, the text. And so the directions, very simple. When anyone offers or brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, verse 1, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour, pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. So these grain offerings basically consisted of fine flour, and then they'd pour some olive oil on to the flour, and also they would put frankincense on it, which was sort of the one element that made it different from just your regular everyday uh, food preparation uh, was the uh, the addition of the frankincense. And, you know, you can look at this sacrifice and perhaps see uh, some pictures of Jesus. Fine flour, perhaps men mentioning or alluding to the perfect nature of Jesus Christ, the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ, mixed with the oil, the oil symbolizing uh, the Spirit of God. And so perhaps uh, a reminder that Jesus was the balance between uh, being completely God and completely man. But then uh, beyond that, just understanding not only was his humanity and on balance with his divinity, but then the reality as well that his ministry on earth was conducted by the power of the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity upon him. And then the, the uh, frankincense, of course, a, a fragrant uh, part of the offering would speak not only of the humanity of Jesus, but the fragrance of the humanity of Christ. Jesus perfect in all of his ways. He, I mean, he did. He lived a just a beautiful kind of life. And what it would have been like to just be around Jesus. And it just would have been sweet to watch even the most minor of interactions with other human beings and the way that he reacted to various uh, news and all of that. Just the, the fragrance and the beauty of the life of Christ. And so they would collect the fine flour, the oil, the frankincense, and they would bring it to Aaron's sons, verse 2, the priest. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and shall the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. So they would bring this to Aaron's sons as a sacrifice, perhaps bringing a sack of grain uh, and, you know, in, in a large portion to give to the priests. And one of Aaron's sons would take a handful of the fine flour and some of the oil and all of the frankincense, none of that would be left over. And they would burn that as its memorial portion on the altar to the Lord, a food offering for God. 
But the rest of this offering, it says in verse 3, would be for Aaron and his sons. It's the most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. And so what that means, of course, uh, is simply that the priests would partake and eat of the rest of the grain offering. The, the offerer, the worshiper, would not partake of this meal, uh, but the Lord would uh, symbolically as he consumed it upon the altar, but also the priests would as well. It was their sustenance in part, and it was holy and dedicated uh, unto the Lord. And of course, the picture here of this grain offering being burnt upon the altar, Jesus Christ in all of his humanity as the bread of life had to pass through the fire of the wrath of God. He drank the cup of the wrath of God upon the cross and consumed uh, the judgment of God for us uh, upon himself uh, on that cross, the fire of Calvary. Now, he says in verse 4, when you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering. So here you have uh, not just the putting in of the grain and the oil, but here you have an offering that's been baked. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. So here he mentions uh, all of these different types of baked offerings, baked in an oven given to uh, the Lord. And he mentions with each one of them, and you have, you know, some of them cooked in a pan, some of them baked on a griddle, and uh, some of them baked in the oven. But with all of them, they were to be done with uh, unleavened uh, bread. And so it wasn't to have the yeast uh, within it, uh, which was, you know, uh, symbolic, of course, of a sinless and perfect uh, sacrifice. And of course, Jesus, sinless and perfect in all of his ways, they tried to find a spot. They tried to find a blemish or something of which to accuse him, but uh, they could not. And so you have all of these different types of sacrifices. And it's interesting here that he speaks of these cakes baked in an oven or on a griddle or in a pan. And if there is a symbolism of that, it's you know, uh, I don't think certainly known to any of us, but perhaps there's a little bit of an expression here of the diversity of the way in which the Lord reaches into a human life. The gospel is to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. And in Christ, there is uh, neither slave nor free, male nor female, barbarian, Scythian. I mean, we are from so many diverse uh, cultures and backgrounds and contexts, but one Lord. And uh, so just the supremacy of Christ over many diverse people. And so uh, here you see the baked sacrifice. And he says in verse 8, And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord. And when it is presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. 
but the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his son. So again, this concept repeated. It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. And it's interesting, actually, this concept that Aaron and his sons would actually eat of the produce of the sacrifices, some given to the Lord, but the rest of it given to Aaron and his sons. Paul uses this as one of the many points that he makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to demonstrate that it is safe and good at times for a New Testament worker of the gospel, whether it be a pastor or a missionary, to actually live from the offerings that the general church body uh, gives and donates, the tithes and the offerings. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 13, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? And here we're actually seeing that uh, outlined in Leviticus chapter 2. No grain offering, verse 11, that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering uh, to the Lord. And again, repeated is the idea that the offering was never to have uh, leaven. And in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 through 8, and as well as in various places in the Gospels, leaven is a picture of of sin. And of course, as I've mentioned, there was no sin in Christ, and so there should be no leaven inside of these sacrifices that were picturing uh, Christ. And you have to go backwards, too, in their history. It wasn't just that they were looking forward to the sinless Messiah, the sinless Christ, but they were looking backward to the time when God had redeemed them from their slavery in Egypt. And at the Passover meal, uh, there was no time to use yeast to make the bread rise. And so uh, perhaps thinking of that moment and remembering that original deliverance uh, from God. But the purity of these sacrifices was all important uh, to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, verse 12, here we have some additional instructions. He says, you may bring them to the Lord but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. And so uh, what you have here are with the grain offering, there would be times that people might say to themselves, well, you know, I'd like to uh, just ahead of time in advance, uh, before I've even uh, gone out and reaped all of my harvest, there's just some first fruits, maybe things that aren't even quite yet ripe, but I'd like to give them to the Lord as a way to say thank you to the Lord for what he has given uh, to me. And, and that's just a beautiful sacrifice to give to the Lord because what that is, is that's a thanks to the Lord for all that is to come. I mean, what faith is involved to be able to say, Lord, I'm going to take part of my crop. I don't even know what all of my crop will look like, but here's the first part of my crop, and I give it to you, trusting that the rest of the crop is going to be plentiful and fine. And it speaks of the priority and the devotion uh, unto the Lord that these people would have had to the Lord, and simply thanking the Lord before he even does the thing that you're thanking him for. He says in verse 13, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer 
uh, salt. And so they would also salt all of their grain offerings, part of their uh, directions. And, you know, honestly, there's a couple of different views as to what the salt uh, potentially represents. Uh, there is the idea that salt represents a strong covenantal bond. And so perhaps remembering the covenant that God had made with the people of Israel. And the reason that salt symbolized that is because the idea was that salt was not destructible by fire. That was what, how they regarded salt. And so a covenant of salt meant something that would last eternally. Uh, but additionally, uh, there is the idea of salt helping preserve and keeping something pure and, and the absence of decay. And, uh, you know, of course, in thinking of Jesus, just the purity of Christ and the lack of decay or corruption uh, within him. But all of their offerings would be offered with salt. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits fresh ears roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. And so again, they're actually giving unto the Lord uh, these sacrifices. And of course, this grain offering, uh, as I mentioned, the distinctive uh, mark about it is uh, one that it was to the Lord and the priests ate of it, but not the worshiper. But secondly, it was a sacrifice that uh, obviously had no blood. It was the produce of the land and not from the flock or uh, from the herd or any uh, bird sacrifice. There was no blood. And so oftentimes these sacrifices, the, the uh, grain offerings, were offered alongside of other sacrifices. So, you know, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You go to offer a sin offering to the Lord, perhaps, and you also give a grain offering, which symbolizes thanksgiving. And what are you thankful for in that moment? Well, you're thankful for the forgiveness of sin. And so they would do that quite often, couple up the grain offering with other sacrifices that they'd given to the Lord. And I think it just speaks to us of having a life that is absolutely littered with thanksgiving, just a joyful life. The Lord has called us to live a joyful life before him, glad and satisfied uh, in him. I think that's one of the beauties of Jesus Christ, all of the suffering, all of the pain, the great burden that was upon him, but the apparent joy that was within his life. You see that within his men, his apostles, his disciples, men like Paul, who in a prison cell was able to rejoice before uh, the Lord. It's a supernatural joy that the Lord gives. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit, but the Lord desires for that to come flowing uh, from our lives. And so Leviticus 2, the grain offering, seems to speak of that reality. Now in chapter 3, we have this peace offering. He says if his offering, verse 1, is a sacrifice of peace offering. And the peace offering uh, symbolized peace not just within the self, but a greater peace that mankind so desperately needs, a peace with God. And basically, this sacrifice, this peace offering, would be a meal that they would have with God. 
uh, God would consume part of the sacrifice. The priest would consume part of the sacrifice. But here, the worshiper would actually consume part of the sacrifice uh, as well. And in the Jewish mind, eating a meal together connected them together. There was sort of this mystical union uh, one with the other. And of course, from our vantage point, the important thing to point out at this point is that here is God detailing how this meal, this togetherness kind of meal is going to work. This was not the creation of man, in other words. It was God initiating with people saying, I want to be in fellowship with you. If this is God initiating uh, that relationship. And so the purpose of the peace offering was simply fellowship with the Lord and all of the peace that comes from that. And uh, it would oftentimes accompany seasons of public rejoicing. Uh, often in the Old Testament, there would be times where they'd have a successful military ca uh, campaign or a famine would cease or there'd be spiritual revival or renewal in the nation or a, a king's candidacy had uh, come about or family reunions or they harvested the first fruits. And they, at those times, would offer this peace offering uh, unto the Lord. So it was an optional sacrifice, but often uh, would occur at very special times. And here are the directions about the peace offering. He says in verse 1, it says, If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish uh, to the Lord. And of course, the interesting thing to point out here is that uh, with the burnt offering, the animal had to be the a male. But here with the peace offering, male or female, but many other things are very similar. He shall, verse 2, uh, lay his hand on the head of his offering, just like the burnt offering, and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And so you basically have this sacrifice where they would bring this animal, male or female, to the Lord, and the worshiper would present this animal. The worshiper would then lay their hands on the head of the animal, understanding, of course, that this fellowship and peace with God comes at a price. Someone had to pay for that peace with God. The worshiper then slays the animal and the priest splashes the blood onto uh, the altar. And uh, probably there'd be some moment where the worshiper would give an explanation of why he was bringing this uh, offering uh, to the Lord. Now, the interesting thing is that God uh, required to be placed upon the altar. The portion that belonged to God was basically the intestines, the vitals of the animal. You had the entrails and the uh, fat and the blood and the kidneys and the long lobe and all of that. They put those things on the altar uh, as a as a sacrifice unto uh, the Lord, which is beautiful in one sense, just from the standpoint that God was going to let them eat the good part and God would consume for himself the part which, you know, they basically couldn't eat. 
Uh, but what he was consuming was the inside of the animal, the thing that without that, the animal obviously would not uh, live. And so he's consuming that part. And uh, you know, we don't, I don't think, completely know why. One thing that should be mentioned is that in ancient times, people would use, pagan nations would use from time to time, the livers of animals to try to gain divine discernment. So perhaps God is just removing that temptation from his people. They had come out of Egypt after all, and perhaps he's just saying, you know, just take all that stuff, throw it on the altar, I'll consume it, and it will not be a temptation to you as my people. But I just love that God gave them the good part to eat. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar, verse 5, on top of the burnt offering, which is on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so just this peace that they would have with God, this meal that they would eat uh, with the Lord. And oftentimes this meal was eaten uh, in large assemblies and, you know, a massive sacrifice that would be uh, given. And, you know, the burnt offering had the sacrifice of the herd and also the flock for the middle class and then of birds for those who were poor in Israel. And this offering doesn't have the birds attached to it because with a bird, there's not enough meat to go to God, to the priests and to the worshiper. And so probably at this point, what would happen is that the poor would join in with the corporate uh, feasts and they'd be able to eat uh, of the sacrifices that others had made. But just the peace that we are able to have uh, with the Lord and uh, just to enjoy the Lord. Ephesians 2 verse 14, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, Colossians 1 verse 20, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now in verse 6, some additional directions regarding the uh, peace offering. He says, if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord is an animal from the flock, so we dealt with the herd, but now the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord. Lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting, and Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. So again, identical to the offering from the herd. Then the sacrifice of the peace offering he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord, its fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. So again, very similar to the offering from the herd. The one addition here in verse 9, the whole fat tail. And uh, some say that in uh, that time, there were a particular breed of sheep that had these really fat uh, tails that they considered a delicacy, but of course very unhealthy. But that was to be removed and not eaten by the worshiper, but consumed on the altar uh, by God. And someone has made the point, isn't it nice that the Lord says, you think it's good, but it's not good for you. I'll consume it for myself upon the altar. If his offering, verse 12, is a goat, 
Then he shall offer it before the Lord, and lay his hand on its head, and kill it in front of the tent of meeting, and the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. Then he shall offer from it as his offering for a food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. All fat is the Lord's. And so again, the Lord consuming that which is not healthy uh, for man. And so again, just reminding you, uh, there is no bird offering option because of the lack of meat to go around to all three parties, God, the priest, and the worshiper. And so in verse 17, he says, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. And so uh, the blood here is prohibited from the people of Israel to eat. Uh, Leviticus 17 verse 11, he says, why? For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life and of course the obvious picture and understanding for us is that we were according to peter not purchased with gold and silver and precious gems but with the precious blood of jesus christ god bless you and amen thank you for listening for additional resources and teachings or to contact us please visit us at nateoldridge.com.